What up, Misfits? Welcome to the Misfit Heroes Podcast. My name is Chris, and together, we are going on a journey. Misfits, I want to talk about blood. I realize that makes me sound like a 1950s horror movie character, but just run with it. The amazing thing about blood is that it doesn't discriminate. It has no race, no creed, sexual preference, gender, no identity whatsoever. Rich or poor, faith-based or atheist, Team Republican, Team Democrat, Team Libertarian, Team Edward or Team Jacob, no matter the descriptor, blood is blood is blood. All blood saves all people if you're in the blood type. Heck, there's even a universal blood type even if you aren't in the blood type. The Red Cross says that the average human in good health can donate blood every 56 days. In the U.S. and Canada, over 43,000 pints of donated blood are used every single day. One out of every seven people who are admitted into a hospital will need blood at some point during their stay. And it would take only 1% of the Americans currently eligible to donate blood to eliminate nearly all of the blood shortages that exist in America. The Bible says in Genesis 9-4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This shows us that God considers blood a physical representation of life. Donating blood is actually a picture of what Jesus did for us when he shed his blood so that we might live. My guest tonight has a journey that revolves around blood and a pretty compelling story about why his son needed it. Bilal Marcus is the creator of MCB, Miracle Comeback, which is a program that initiates and runs blood drives in America and around the world. His son, Rashid, was in a bicycle accident and was run over by two trucks at the age of 12 years old. After being in a coma for six days, he began a miraculous recovery after losing kidney function, broken ribs, and losing 46 pints of blood during surgery. I just want to point this out real quick because we didn't talk about it in the interview, but 46 pints of blood is nearly six gallons of blood. I bet you didn't know you had that much blood. I know I didn't. Since the injury and the recovery, Bilal and Rashid have gone on to write a series of books, and through MCB Global, they have initiated and run blood drives in over 30 countries around the world. So let's hear their story. Misfits, please welcome Bilal Marcus. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. Bilal Marcus, welcome to the Misfit Heroes podcast. How are you doing tonight? Oh, great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been doing some research about you, and I've listened to a couple of the episodes of other podcasts you've been on. And I got to say, you've got a really harrowing story about your son, Rashid. It's it's really inspirational to hear, and it, it's led you to what seems like a new path in your life. So I'm really excited to talk to you. I mean, thanks thanks for coming on to the show. Oh, I, I really appreciate it. And yeah, um, hopefully I can inspire a few people. It changed my life for the last 11 years. Before we get into what you're currently doing with like the books and the Miracle Comeback organization and the people that you've met, let's talk about you a little bit. Tell me about yourself. First and foremost, where are you from? What's your life story and what do you do? Okay. um, I was born actually in Gary, Indiana. But um, I grew up and we moved to Florida when I was like six or seven. I grew up there. So that's always my home. Even I moved up to Milwaukee where I've been here since 94. Florida's always my home. That ocean, that salt water smell. That I used to go crabbing and all that stuff. I grew up in a Greek town in Florida. My father was from Greece. My mother was from Italy. So I got a little bit of both in me. Moved up here. Yeah, Milwaukee. So that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> Hopefully I'll move back to Florida one day. I've heard in other podcasts, you mentioned that you are a single father. Can you tell me a little bit about your kids? How many kids you got? I got seven total. At that time, but I was a single father of three with my ex-wife, two boys and a girl. 
from the uh, year 2008 up until 2013. I was a single father of three with no help, just me, myself, and I. As a, At that time in 2008, I was doing security at a building called Esperanza Unida. And I did that for a little while. And then um, I'm a truck driver today. Not not semi-truck, but I do deliveries like a local, like 26-foot truck, like gas stations, corner stores. But like I tell people, you always got to do something you hate in order to get what you want. And I stay there just because it helps me build on MCB. So yeah, I'm a truck driver. I do that four days a week. I wish I didn't have to do it, but I have to, to keep things uh, rolling, you know, globally with what I do and my passion. Let's talk about your kids real quick. So I want you to tell me about the events leading up to August 2nd, 2009. Can you give me a little backstory about particularly your son, Rashid? Sure. Well, Rashid is the younger of the two. At that time, he was 12 years old and his brother Elijah was 15. He kind followed his brother into the gangs at that age not as leaders but as followers because of the age they were easily you know brought into that lifestyle and i had to work and the area at that time which uh, i'm glad we don't we don't hear about gangs anymore but like 10 years ago you did and what happened was um they got into it and involved and i had i i didn't want them getting hurt you know i had threats on myself too because of my attitude you know i wasn't going to put up with that stuff but we moved on august 2nd 2009 to a better area so i thought i mean it's a nice area it's like four or five miles away from where we lived where this stuff was taking place so the very next day on august 3rd 2009 we were unpacking and they was whispering in each other's ears about asking one of them to ask me if they can go for a bike ride in the new area and i said okay after we're done unpacking it was about after breakfast time around 11 something a.m and they went and and it, something didn't seem right after a couple hours so i knew right away that they went back to their old neighborhood and you know i didn't have a, a car at the time so i had to jump on the bus so i jumped on the bus around one two o'clock searching them found the older brother at the library where i knew he might be he was always there and i yelled at him and told him to go get his brother he went to go and they disappeared so i'm uh looking for them for hours, you were walking around in circles like a dog chasing his tail, just looking for them before the sun went down. So I got on the bus before sunset and went back home, hoping that they would be there, but they were not. I was just devastated. You know, I knew I felt something bad was going to happen. And then I decided to leave a note on the door to kind of drag away time and just said, meet me at the restaurant when you get home. So I stayed there as long as I could. And then I came home and I stopped at a friend's house, just dragging my feet. The longer I felt like that I was going to drag my feet, that they were going to meet me or beat me home. And I got home about 11.15 p.m. and I was taking my shoes off and I heard a yell. I was up, We live upstairs at the time. And I heard a, a yell saying, Daddy, Daddy, emergency, emergency. And I look out the window and I recognize my older son. And he's standing next to a lady who's a family friend of theirs. So I, I run downstairs and he says, Rashid has been in a serious accident on 16th and Greenfield. So we jump in the car, we get there like in around seven, eight minutes, and there's about 30, 25, 35 squad cars. The bicycle was there and I, my son wasn't there. So they, I told them who I was and they said, get to the, you know, someone followed us there. They, we raced to the hospital, not knowing really nothing. They couldn't tell me anything there. They didn't know themselves exactly the situation. So got there. I was met an officer. His name was Keith Miller. He was in the ambulance with my son. He was saying, I needed to talk to someone over there, two detectives. They brought me in the room, brought me some tissue. So here I am thinking that they're going to say, oh, your son is uh, dead. You know, like you see on the TV shows because they brought the tissues and they're telling me what happened. They didn't say he, was, he had died, but they told me that it was a serious accident where he was run over by two SUVs 
on his bicycle and I, I wasn't myself, you know, I didn't know what to say. So after they were done, I got on the computer and this was uh, probably the, the hardest thing I've ever did in my life. I got on there and I emailed family and friends around the world and family here saying that, you know, my uh, son has been hit and run over by two trucks. He might not make it. Pray for him that he does. And if he doesn't, that he dies and goes to heaven without pain. Because at that moment, my, my concern was that he was in pain. You know, he was only like 90 pounds at that time. And, you know, imagine two trucks running him over from two different directions. Just, it's hard to explain. I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine myself surviving one. And I'm a lot bigger. And then around 1.30 a.m., the surgeon came out with this look on his face. And he told me what had happened, you know, the, the surgeries and what he went through. He lost one kidney, half his liver, broke his pelvis, crushed one lung and lost 46 pints of blood in surgery. But he's still with us. They had put a stent in his head to release any pressure from the brain from swelling. So he's in a coma. He basically said he has a 5% chance to survive. But on in his face, it looked like he had already passed away the way he was looking at me. He said that if he does survive, that he's going to be a different boy that I remember. <clears throat> which to me means like a vegetable, just sitting in a chair, can't see, can't talk, can't eat. So this is what's going on in my head. I said, all I got to do is just pray for him and ask other people to do it. There was nothing else. I mean, when you're in that position in your life where you can't do nothing, you just got to sit there, pray and hope something happens. And that's what we did. And then people from around the country, you know, like different states that I didn't know came and visited them. They must have heard about it on the news, like the CNN or something. I don't know. But from New Jersey, Mississippi, and uh, Minnesota, three different families came and visited them, traveled far to be with them and pray for them, which gave me a lot of strength, I think. And as days went on, as he was in a coma, I never gave up. One lady in particular, I'll never forget. Her name was Africa Imani. She was a family friend, and she had lost three kids, one to gun violence, shot and killed. Another a 10-year-old who was run over on the way to a gas station killed. And then one of her sons is in jail for the rest of his life. So basically, she lost three kids. So she felt a connection with my son, Rashid. And she slept at the hospital and wrote a journal. And I still have that journal today. And she, Everything that happened, everything that was said, she wrote it down. I have it up in my attic. And days went by. I mean, with nothing. You know, they couldn't tell me if he's going to make it or not. You know, it was just a matter of time and here comes august 9th six days later he his finger moves and one of his eyes open up and he recognizes me and wow. and how, how and how i know that was because he called me baba that's what he calls me and if he if he didn't recognize me he wouldn't you know i mean if he he wouldn't have said that and as this went on days by the 11th he was sitting up so things started drastically changing from what they thought would happen, meaning he's sitting up and he's walking, you know, every day he's moving a little bit more. And by like, I don't know if I remember 14th or 15th of August, he was going up and down steps with the physical therapist. It was just mind blowing. You know, I mean, he lost weight more. He's already skinny, you know, but because of surgery, he has a cut from the top of his chest all the way past his navel. That basically will be a reminder for the rest of his life. They want him to go home on August 17th, but I, I didn't know what to do. So I, I was making every excuse in the book to keep him there because I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to handle it. And then by August 25th, he went home. I had a little bit of help. You know, I bring him to work with me sometimes at the security. He would lay in the daycare, you know, because of the pain, his body's still adjusting, you know, all the surgery and everything, you know, stuff that we can't imagine as adults, much less having it happen to your kid. Jeez, I'm scared of like going to the dentist. And here, <laughs> my son, my little son over here has been through all this. And on September 9th, he starts back to school. 
this is only, you know, a little more, more over a month later after all this, after they gave him a 5% chance. And, you know, basically we're saying that he wasn't going to be the same boy that I remember if he did survive. And he starts back to school September 9th. He's gaining his strength back step by step. And he starts the physical therapy and they said he would need about two and a half years, two to two and a half years of physical therapy. And after like two weeks, they said they, they narrowed it down to two and a half months. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, it's just the one thing after another. This is beautiful. I'm not complaining, but something's going on here that I wasn't t- told. <laughs> and, but I want to say something too, that I forget. And I brought that up on one of the other podcasts was in October. Well, the doctor told me when he leaves the hospital that there's always a chance that his intestines could kink up because of the, you know, it's like cutting them and sewing them together after the surgery. They could kink up after all this, but that's dangerous. You know, that could be life-threatening if you don't catch it, if you don't know the signs. <clears throat> so in October, on a Monday, I remember it was a Monday because I was off that day, and he came home sick, and it was his therapist, his physical therapy day. I said, you got physical therapy today. Come on, let's go. Oh, I feel like I'm going to throw up, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, we're going to call. I'm going to cancel it. I'm going to take you to Children's Hospital. He was, he just wanted to lay down. I said, no, we got to go. Soon as I got him in the wheelchair, pushing him into the hospital, he asked where the bathroom was. I go there and I did, and he started throwing up yellow stuff all over the place. I didn't know what was going on. And they said it, uh, his intestine kinked up. So he, he had to have emergency surgery. But, you know, I kind of forget about that sometimes because he, he was in and out of there in about a week. And ever since then, it hasn't been a problem. And yeah, he started writing for the newspapers end of 2009 or early 2010. He wrote for this, he wrote an article, the guy who published it, titled it or miracle comeback. And that's where I got the title from. I don't want to lie and say I came up with it myself and I, it stuck in my head. I said, this fits perfect. And I started organizing blood drives called miracle comeback. And that's where my inspiration came because it took 46 people to save my son's life. And I just said, Hey, I got to do something. So let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about his injuries. He had lost one kidney. Half his liver broke his pelvis, crushed one lung, and lost 46 pints of blood in surgery. So 46 people donated. I mean, did you know all those people? No, no I, di- I didn't know any of them. I was reading some stats about donating blood, and I don't think people recognize how necessary it is. How can people get involved? To get involved in, I think you're referring to blood donors or blood donations, is just go to your nearest blood center, blood bank. In my city, we have the Red Cross, we have Verse City, which was the blood center of Wisconsin. Just call them up. You can't really just go there. You got to call them up and then schedule yourself. And then they'll give you, they'll give you a little test when you're there. Yeah. But I would just say, just have them go to the nearest blood bank after calling and just schedule yourself, bring some people because there's a blood shortage, especially during this time in COVID. A lot of people need blood today more than ever. So let's talk about Rashid. How's he doing now? I mean, Facebook, it looks like he's like 18 now. What's he doing? No, he's actually 24, going to be 25. He's doing good. He's got a full-time job at a car wash, making more than I do. He's moving up to a manager's position, moving himself up. So he's doing great. I mean, mentally and physically, he's all there. Just a scar on his belly to remember what took place on 2009. And so Miracle Comeback, what is it and how did that get started? Sure. Miracle Comeback, I started back in late 2009 after my son wrote an article. The title stuck in my head. 
the title gave me the energy to really think more, which is called Miracle Comeback in the Spanish Journal. That was what the title is. And I started organizing blood drives. I mean, I started by donating blood. I met people. People started coming. Every three to four months, I would do a Miracle Comeback 1, Miracle Comeback 2, Miracle Comeback 3. I tried to do this like every four months. We got on the news. We invited people to go and meet us there and donate. And it seemed to work. I mean, it was the only thing I knew at the time. And then things got bigger. With the blood drives, how exactly does that happen? I mean, how exactly do you start a blood drive? Do you just walk into a blood bank and say, hey, I want to put on a blood drive? Or how exactly does that happen? Tell me about the process. Well, before COVID, you could just walk in. You could speak to one of the people in charge. And I knew them pretty well. And they would give me a calendar, a list. I was doing my own. And I found it a lot easier just to join somebody else's blood drive. This way I could invite my friends and say, Miracle Comeback joins whatever, like a church or whatever their organization is. And they already have a spot and made it easier for me. So I was doing that. And then, you know, things just um, started making sense. And I'll get into the part where MCB went global. That's a story in itself, but that made me stick with it and knowing I'm saving lives like someone did this to my son, is well worth it. Well, let's talk about that too. I mean, so how did that happen with the global movement of MC? When did that start? When did you see that sort of growth period? Well, in 2011, I got a little spark when I met Hollywood actor Elvis Tao, who played in the movie Grand Torino with Clint Eastwood. He is an activist. He's a musician, an actor. He likes inspirational stuff. I found that out right away. We met him in person. He was one of the bad guys in the movie. We met him at Denny's restaurant. His family's from the city near where I live. We met. He joined immediately. Now he's considered the co-founder of MCB. And then I met someone in Uganda online not too long after. And he started doing MCB Uganda blood drives because he believed us and he saw it as a good way to save lives. And it just went there. I mean, once, once I realized in 2011, 2012, that it's much bigger than it appeared to be. So country after country started joining after months of struggling. You know, once I did the hard part the first couple of years, it seemed like everything started to fall in place. People started joining actors, professional athletes, musicians from around the world, Indonesia. We're in over 20 countries today, not because it fell out of the sky or it was easy. It was hard as hell. There was nothing easy about this, but it was my mission. And if we have five music videos, two in Indonesia and three from Burundi, Africa, about promoting MCB, we have over 12 songs from different countries promoting MCB, the book. I wrote a couple books. I'm on my third one. Everything just started making sense. I don't know. There's no specific religion allowed in MCB. We're Muslim, Christian, different men, women. It's not a religious organization. It's a life-saving. So we have children. We have my mother's 90. She's a promoter. We have someone who's 80. So we have elderly. We have children. We have all kinds, men, women involved. And it's just a beautiful thing. And it's unity too, because it's all around the world. You know, we all believe in saving lives and unifying regardless of what we're being told in the news. We also started something else starting tomorrow too. One of our biggest MCV events is taking off tomorrow in Nigeria. 
Let's talk about that. Tell me about what's going on with Nigeria. Also, I mean, how many countries are you all involved in now in total? Over 30 at least, over 20 in Africa and minimum 10 outside of Africa, which is like the Netherlands, Papua New Guinea, Philippines, Indonesia, Barbados, Haiti, India, Pakistan. I I, I never could say them all. But, you know, Africa is where it started and then it just spread and it just everybody's unifying. That's my motivation to see people change because of MCB, not just by blood donations, by the way they see each other. And they call each other brothers and sisters, you know, and they're all different colors, white, black, you know, Asian, Indian. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. I'm learning what MCB could do tomorrow different than today. Can make it better. It's exciting. It's a rush. That sounds pretty amazing. So what were you saying that's going to be happening in Nigeria? You said something's coming next. Yes. And this, this is amazing because this young lady joined MCB only two months ago and she's putting on the biggest MCB event and she's changing the face of MCB. What I mean by changing it is adding, not changing it, but adding to it. She's feeding the poor. I was able to collect enough donations for her dream to become a reality. And she, her dream has always been to be able to get the poor together in one spot and feed them and, you know, inspire them. And she's been working her butt off this whole week. I got the donation center. She's cooking for these homeless people, people that actually live on the street, elderly, children, eating out of garbage cans. No, no kidding. And she's going to be feeding over 300 of them tomorrow. She's been working hard and she's not just throwing it on the floor for them to eat. I mean, she's got, she rented chairs, 300 chairs, plates. Fish. She's giving them fish with rice, you know, expensive, good food. And she's going to do lectures and she wants to talk to them and tell them, you know, that we love them and care, you know, give them some inspirational words. It's just amazing because this is something she opened up the door to do many things. Now she has an organization. She helps human trafficking and we're going to do that. August 3rd is going to be the 12 year anniversary. And she's her next event is going to be helping survivors of human trafficking. And she's going to get them and help them and talk to them and feed them and try to inspire them, you know, to speak up and to work with her. And uh, my wife in the Philippines, she's the ambassador there. And she's going to be doing an event on widows and orphans because she was a widow before I married her. So she has, her heart is with them. Kenya is also going to be doing the same thing, different events. And everything is going to be about blood donations too, the ones that can't do these big events. But it's opening the door to helping orphans, to homeless, feeding the poor, just so many things. And the ideas are just coming to my head. It's just like, I feel inspired. And she's only there two months. Her name is Sadiatu. Doing this thing is her dream. And I'm just so happy. She's thanking me. I'm thanking her. You know, people jumped on there to help her. So now I realize the importance of making my organization nonprofit because I've been doing this whole thing for the last 11 years out of my pocket. Now it's time to get the funds hopefully in the next year or two, so we can do the big events without struggle because people are suffering all over the world. Brazil, I want to go do some events there. It's overwhelming sometimes, but I realize it's worth it because to put a smile on a child's face or an elderly, you know, it's priceless, you know, and I just can't wait to see tomorrow's pictures and videos. And it's just exciting. Well, that's amazing. It sounds like this story is about one person making real world change because they see the need and then they do the work. And it's really impressive to me that you do all of this sort of out of your own pocket. Let's 
talk about some of the things that you're doing to raise funds. How can people get involved with that? And also, can you tell me about the books that you've written? My first book is called Miracle on Greenfield. I wrote that in 2012, held on to it for eight years. And in 2020, when I was engaged to my fiance in the Philippines, she said, we got to get this thing going. It's very important. She knows how much it meant to me. I said, I don't know anything about publishing a book. I I really didn't even know how to write one. I just did it because of the story. So she worked out for three months. She searched it. She got it published in 2020. And this is a story about MCB in a children's book called Miracle on Greenfields. It's on Amazon. It's only 10 bucks. I got it to the lowest price you can because it's not about making the money. It's about every, every penny goes to my organization. I haven't earned a dime. And that's okay because it's my passion. But in 2021, I published my second book. It's called The Secret Life of Ponji. My youngest son at that time was five. Now he's six. His name is Ponji. He became known as the MCB superhero. And literally, he has a superhero outfit. My wife made him in the Philippines. And I made a book that was inspired by my first book. This has a lot of truth in it too. Our personality is the way he, he's, his mission is to find out what his superhero power is. And it's not flying. It's not picking up buildings. And you'll see all this in the book. He finds out what it is. And it's very inspirational too. Every every book from the series is going to be based on reality, stuff that happens today, whether it's racism, to be kind to your neighbors, treat your family with respect, kidnapping, bullying. So that's the aim, but it's going to be with MCB, our blood drives and all that stuff's going to take place in all these books. And he's he inspires us to do a little bit extra too. And he has a group of kids that he forms, MCB superheroes. So that's where the books came out. I started loving it. I wrote that book in a day and I wrote the other book. I, I even wrote one about my mother because my mother's 90 years old. I wrote one about her life in a cartoon book. And so writing has been become my love right now. Hopefully I can get them all published in the next couple of years. I have like six written ahead of time. That's awesome, man. So what's next for MCB after the books? I mean, what else is going on with the blood drives? It's just a matter of getting organized. I'm working right now on an organized pamphlet for every MCB country that we have to follow. So everybody's going to be responsible. The whole thing is to get organized. We need to organize the ambassador ambassadors to say, hey, okay, this day we're going to do this. Every country is going to follow the same guidelines. And in between that, I'm working on hopefully in the next couple of years to get it nonprofit so we can accomplish much more where we can meet together, where we can organize bigger and better blood drives and other things like feeding the poor. You know, they're all going to work hand in hand. You know, the health walk, we have something called the health walk in uh, Ghana that's going to be taking place soon. And that took place a couple of years ago too with him, with uh, Sumela, the ambassador of Ghana. So there's so much stuff, you know, it's so we're right now, we're just sitting down. We're, I'm going to write something up. Hopefully in the next month or two, we'll have a website back up this summer. I want to get this pamphlet done so everybody can have it. We can all follow the same guidelines because actually my wife was the first one in the Philippines to get the Red Cross connected with MCB there. So I'm hoping what she did will open up doors for Red Cross and other countries too, because sometimes that's a problem just to walk in and say, I want to organize a blood drive. But if you have the Red Cross behind you, everything becomes much easier. So we're just finding out what works, what doesn't work and try to separate the two so we can keep moving forward. And the people that really care about humanity seem to love what we're doing. Some people thought it was a business. They thought they were going to get paid to do it. So I had to deal with a lot of that throughout the years. 
Hey, I got, you got a job for me. There's a lot of scammers out there. You know, you just got to get yourself out there and be blunt with people. We don't have money to be paying your college tuition. You know, I've heard those stories or my mom's sick. I, I've heard them all. So, you know, we just got to be careful too. So we're not getting scammed, but you'll hopefully see it by next year. You know, everything will be much better than it is today. I'm hoping. Well, I love what you're doing. I mean, your story is great and you've clearly got a passion for it. How can people get involved? I mean, how can they find you? How can they check you out? Do you guys have a website or are you on any social media or YouTube? TikTok, anything like that? Yeah. The best way right now is Facebook. I don't know about TikTok. That I'm not into yet. I don't know. Maybe my kids are, but the best way is Facebook right now. Facebook Messenger, which is Bilal, B-I-L-A-L, Marcus, M-A-R-K-I-S. That's the best way right now. I check it every day. I do most of my work on my phone. I don't even know how to type. I type like a chicken with two fingers. So I I do better with my cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely think there's going to be a lot of people that want to check you out. We're winding down the podcast now and every episode in 2021, I've been asking all my guests the same question. And that is this, what's the last goal that you completed? And what's the next goal that you want to set for yourself? The last goal was to have MCB go global and that happened. And the next goal is for the ambassadors, for all of us to meet in person. That has been a dream of mine to meet everybody that's done so much good for humanity and meet in one place. I'm going to make sure that happens one day. Well, that's awesome, man. Have you all mainly been reaching out on social media or how have you met all these people for the most part. One after another, it was just like, you know, I, I see somebody on Facebook and this person knows this person because they're Facebook friends. They got a little organization or they're a school teacher. Now going back, this lady Chungu, she's a school teacher in Zambia. She got my first book and we, we got it made in Malawi and it got shipped. That's where she's originally from. I have to be creative how they get them over there because shipping is unbelievable. So I have to get stuff printed over there. And she got the book, Miracle on Greenfield, part of her curriculum in her school. It's stamped. So now she just received my second book yesterday. So these are like becoming part of their curriculum in the school. You know, like they have like a library. It's in the library. So that to me is awesome. Now everybody is wanting the books, you know, but not, you know, until I get funds, I can't really do much, but take it out of my pocket. And it's things are moving slow because of that. But one day I want everybody to have them. And I put these people, everybody in my book is an actual person. So the next book is going to show a lot of MCB members in the book too, which is kind of cool. And it gives them a, you know, they, they feel appreciated and I don't use just anybody. Everybody in those books or somebody I know from my organization and my family. Well, I definitely believe in what you're doing and I definitely see that big things are going to happen for you. I totally understand doing stuff on your own is very hard, but I know that the hard work is going to pay off. I definitely see the passion that is behind your work and what you're doing and just the way that you handle yourself. I'm very impressed with what you do. You've got a very inspirational message. And I want to know if you could tell people one thing about your story or one thing that they could pull from this conversation even, what do you think that would be? Somebody asked me when my son was in a coma, this woman came up to me, her name was Bonnie. And she asked me, how is your son doing? And you know, I answered her and I said, hug your kids, kiss them. Because you're not guaranteed you'll see them tomorrow. Spend time with family. You know what I mean? Eat at the dinner table because you might not see them tomorrow. My friend, my best friend lost his son at 17 years old with no health problems. He just died. He was late. He was sleeping in his bed dead with no health problems. To this day, they don't know what happened to him. Why? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So spend time with your kids. Get to know them because the technology, people are texting each other from the different, from bedroom to the kitchen. Put the electronics down and talk. I'm trying to go back to the 1980s. That's when I grew up, you know, and (laughs) I wish things would go back. Seriously. I hate cell phones. I hate this stuff sometimes because it just takes you away from the butterflies and the, 
you know, the birds in the, the trees, God, things I miss, bicycling with the kids, spend time with your kids. And that one thing that you said, spend time with the family, unite, you know, come together, look at each other in the eye, put the phones away. Well, there you go. Misfits, go check Bilal out. Clearly, if you've listened to this conversation at all, his story is very impactful and I love what you're doing, man. I, I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you want to promote or anything like that before we shut this guy down? Oh, let me think. There was something on my mind, but I, it slipped my mind. Kind of. It comes with boxing. I guess short. I used to box when I was younger. I got short-term memory loss sometimes. I think my mom says that's what it's from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it comes to, when I write my books. I, I have to write them right then and there. Otherwise, I'll forget what, what's on my mind. But one more thing. I, I like to say this, too, because there's a song in Gambia, and they're real heavy into the blood donations, and we're pretty big there, is there's a part in a song that sticks out to me, and I like to tell people. Donate blood today because you don't know if you're going to need blood tomorrow and it's not there. At least if you donate, donate today because if you don't, don't expect it to be there when you need it because it's happened before. You know, people go and they die because there's no blood there. So if people actually woke up and decide, hey, I'm going to go donate blood and, you know, one pint of blood saves up to three lives. So just, you know, do it. Do it. Somebody's going to need it. My son needed 46 people, just one time you know so hopefully by me saying that will make people at least think about it well there we go with that being said i really appreciate you coming on below i think your story is tremendous and i totally understand the pressure of doing everything yourself but it's going to pay off in the end so what you're doing is great please keep doing what you're doing i want to thank you again for coming on to the podcast and i really wish you the best man thank you for doing this Thank you, and I hope we keep in touch because I want to tell you about what happens tomorrow. Awesome. We definitely will. We definitely will. Well, Bilal, have a great night. You too. Thank you. Well, Misfits, we did it. That's our episode. I want to thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of our sponsors, there are affiliate links on the Sponsors tab of our website at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there, so follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help us out, do us a favor, rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. Good or bad, just let us know. Truly Misfits, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. And until the next episode, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.